Afghanistan really became a part of my fabric as a person, um, especially after three tours in three years. So it was, you know, it really, who I was that went there never came home. And that's okay, because the person that came back, uh, while there was some struggles, it's, it's really worked out for the better. Hi, I'm Shannon Busta, and you're listening to For Her Country, a podcast produced by the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. Over the course of this series, we'll explore lessons in leadership from inspirational female leaders from across Canada's armed forces, all in honor of fallen Canadian military hero, Captain Nicola Goddard. The clip you just heard is from my conversation with Captain Marianne Barber, a nurse with multiple deployments, including both Kabul and Kandahar, Afghanistan. Marianne is a passionate healer who has saved countless lives, all while working in conditions that would realistically send most of us running for cover. In 2013, Marianne began working at the Canadian Forces Health Services Training Center in Borden, Ontario. While she was there, she taught a number of courses, including the primary care nurse course and the basic nursing officer course. Marianne had an incredible career in the armed forces, but her work overseas definitely took its toll, and she was medically released in 2018 with post-traumatic stress disorder. But shortly afterwards, she finished her master's degree in nursing, and since graduating, she has worked across Canada as a nurse practitioner in far-flung places including Baffin Island in Nunavut and Interior, BC. And a quick warning to our listeners, this episode includes some depictions of Marianne's time in Kandahar that some listeners may find disturbing. Marianne, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. I'm hoping we can start today's conversation off by discussing what you do for a living. So uh, right now I'm a uh, nurse practitioner. Um, I work in uh, a variety of different jobs, but um, I, yeah, I provide care in a few different settings around the country, and that's what I'm doing now that I'm retired. And I don't think you're kidding when you say all over the country. You were just working up in Nunavut, am I correct? I was, yeah. I just got home uh, last week. Uh, I was in a little town uh, for, the, for the month of June uh, called Iglulik in Nunavut, and it's... Uh, way up off uh, the northeast coast of uh, Baffin Island, and it's a population of about 1,500 people. So uh, it's pretty far up there, but it's a great little spot. And can you help us understand what it's like to work in such a remote part of the country? I find it really, uh, I find it really interesting because it's such a, it's such a different world. It almost doesn't feel like you're in Canada at all. It's very, um, you know, remote and austere in some ways, and yet, you know, you can still go to the grocery store and, and get the things that you need. Of course, everything is much more expensive, and the travel to get there is always a bit of a, a crapshoot, if you may. And then, of course, then you're providing care in this remote, austere location, and you don't always have the resources that you'd like to have. So it's, um, it kind of appealed to me for in that sense because it reminded me of my time in the military and the people are amazing the Inuit are by far just this amazing group of Canadians that are so kind and sweet and genuine so it's an awesome awesome experience I love it up there you mentioned that nursing in remote regions reminds you of your career in the military and I know that you're retired now but I'd love to hear a bit about how your career in the armed forces ultimately began uh, so way back when I joined um, after I had done my first year of university 
Um, and I had been interested in joining actually right out of high school, but they weren't taking any nurses that year. I didn't get accepted. Um, and so, but I joined primarily for the free education. You know, I got sold on the, you know, we'll pay for your degree and you owe us your time. Afterwards, I knew nothing about the military. Um, I had, you know, there was nobody in my family who was actively serving at that time. I think my dad did like three years when he was a teenager. So that was long gone. So there was nobody really around in my world who had joined. And so, you know, I kind of fell into the recruiting center ads when they come to your high school and say, hey, we'll pay for your entire education. That was primarily why I joined. I thought, well, this is not a bad way to do things, to come out of school without any debt. And then I get to see the world and I get to take care of our our soldiers when I'm done nursing. And it sounded like kind of a little bit of everything that I wanted to do, the travel, the adventure, always moving around, kind of doing something different. So it appealed to me for a variety of reasons, but primarily was that free education piece. So So you enlisted so that you could become a nurse, but what was it about nursing that had attracted you in the first place? Um, Initially, I went into nursing actually so that I could use it as a stepping stone to go into medicine um, because I was thinking that, you know, being a doctor would be pretty great way to help people. But about in my third year of nursing, I actually fell in love with nursing and loved the role and the responsibility and um, the challenges that came with nursing and the variety that nursing offered. I could work in a million different settings around the world. And I really liked the appeal of that. I knew it would open a lot of doors that I wanted and that would be like travel or flight or, um, you know, there were so many different avenues that I could go into nursing. And so initially it was to be used as a stepping stone, but then it became something that I surprisingly fell in love with, so. You know, I have lost a lot of loved ones to cancer and and not to take away from the very important work that the doctors do, but when I think back to the care that my family received, it was the nurses who made the difference in the day-to-day quality of life for my loved ones. Yeah, I mean, nursing is this amazing uh, piece we get to put in the the complex care and the, the science and the evidence-based medicine behind into our, into our practice. But we also get to really bring forward that care piece and we get the time, we're allocated the time. You know, it's when I worked in the ICU, you're 24 hours at the bedside. Um, when you're working med surge, you're bathing and dressing changes and you're up with these people all the time and you're and you're really helping people at their in their most dire moments. It's such an honor to be a part of this profession that, you know, at people's lowest moments, you're the person who goes in to help. And that I find very honorable about what it is that we do. And I, I, I lecture a little bit with a few different um, colleges and universities and their nursing programs. And I'm, I always try to reinforce to the new grads, like, this is a place of honor. Like, we have to work our butts off to be able to be able to do this care. But on top of that, you are helping people at their lowest moment, at their, on their last day when they take their last breath. And I know, uh, you know, in my time in Afghanistan, we sat with our patients and we never let anybody die alone, whether they were Christian or Muslim or uh, any other religion and it, it was such a a highlight in my time to be able to at least provide a little bit of compassion to ever to everybody that came through our doors and uh, makes me really proud of the of the history of the profession. I mean, nurses in the military were the first uh, women in the military. They were the first commissioned officers in the military, in the Canadian military. Uh, you know, there were these trailblazer women, you know, in the Boer War and World War One, World War Two. Like there's this incredible legacy of what it is to be a military nurse. So I was pretty proud to be a part of that. And what a gift to be able to stay with someone in their final moments. 
Yeah, it was um, always really tough, but it was always very, uh, you know, you knew it was the right thing and it was the decent thing to do and it was the humane thing to do. You know, it, it allows a little bit of dignity, so. And you mentioned Afghanistan. Would you mind walking us through a timeline of your career? Sure. So I joined in 1997 under the regular officer training plan while they were while I was going to school. Uh, and in my summers, in between my semesters, I would go to basic training and then um, and second language training. And then in 2000, I graduated. I got posted to Edmonton to One Health Support Operational Training Unit, where I was able to work in civilian hospital, um, as well as, you know, get all my military nursing basic courses done, my basic medical field course, and then started going to the field and doing training exercises. Uh, uh, and I was lucky enough to get placed as a new grad working in Emerge. So I was automatically working in a kind of critical care emergency and trauma environment, which is where I really specialized my entire career on. And so I was in Edmonton until 2006. And in that time frame, I deployed to Bosnia in 2002, uh, September 2002 till like April of 2003 as part of um, the uh, NATO stabilization force. I was on Roto 11, Op Palladium, which is, you know, obviously people have been there for quite a while. And and, uh, you know, the war was pretty settled by that point of time. And there were still some obviously demining activities. But where I was stationed, there wasn't really any action or activity. Most of our casualties we saw were from uh, the daily ball hockey events or somebody doing too much PT and hurting themselves or the, ca- the camp cough that goes around every tour. Um, and how old were you at this time? 25. And this was your first deployment? First deployment, yeah. So, and I had been almost stood up to go to Afghanistan in 2001, right after 9-11. There was a a group of of us that had been activated on 9-11, which is, you know, I can say it's exactly when my life changed. uh, Because all of a sudden now you're getting ready to go somewhere to war. You've never been I had already known I was going to Bosnia, but now all of a sudden this event has happened and, and, and our and life goes in a completely different direction. So by the time I got to Bosnia, I'd already done a ton of different training and had already done a bunch of different field exercises. So it was a lot of fun and it was it was actually a really great experience, especially for a first tour because it wasn't that busy and the team I had was fantastic. And on our off days, we on our we, we rebuilt a school in this town called Sistenovac. So we went into this little community and I went back to Bosnia on vacation, which sounds really crazy, uh, in 2011. And the school was still there and everything was the way that it was when we were there. And we basically took this old building. It was all bombed out and we put in like new bathrooms and floors and walls and windows and we built desks. Yeah, it turned out really, really great. So So many of our guests on the podcast have shared similar stories about how they found ways to give back on deployment. Why do you think it's so common to hear these stories from service members in the armed forces? I think it's important for us to connect to the local community, you know, whatever, whatever the perception of us, uh, you know, from their perspective as to why we're there, you know, I wholeheartedly believe, believe that, you know, we were always there to help and, and, and make things better and to improve things. And so it always seemed like the right thing to do. You know, here's this project, we're going to rebuild a school, of course, I'll give my time. And on top of that, you know, it's a way to kind of have a little bit of stress relief, you get to go pound a few nails in some boards, and you get to hang out with your fellow team members away from the camp and away from kind of the rules and regulations, if you may, and you just get to relax and, and do something and you get to interact with the locals, which was which was what you know, we really wanted. And 
And most of my tours, I mean, obviously Afghanistan and Kandahar was a very different world, but, you know, there wasn't a ton of that. Um, so prior, you know, Bosnia was only my first tour. And that was re- what I really wanted was to be nursing and helping the local population. And that wasn't our mandate. So this was how I was able to help and give back. I think everybody, I feel that's so they get around some of the regulations about what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do, maybe. Before we started talking about the school in Bosnia, you mentioned that your life really changed on 9-11. Can you tell us a bit more about that? How how did it change? Um, It was like I was working in Merge uh, that day and, and got a phone call. Uh, you know, I'd watched the news. Uh, one of our frequent flyers had come in and said, hey, he always called me Sergeant. He's like, hey, Sergeant. It's like, there's something going on in the news. You should come watch us because the TV was out in the waiting room. And so I, I was like, mm-hmm. I was working triage and busy with my patients. And finally, I took five minutes and went and, and actually watched, because of the time difference in Alberta, uh, watched the second plane hit the second tower. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is a big deal. So then following the new stuff, and then I phoned work um, because our unit, we were predominantly working in civilian hospitals as supernumerary staff. Um, and so I remember calling and saying, uh, what are we, what's going on? Like the, and one of the girls that I got a hold of, she just said, yeah, get your stuff together, go home, get packed, get back here. We don't know where we're going. We don't know if we're going, but we are this immediate response unit, medical team, like be ready. And technically we're supposed to have had our stuff already packed and ready to go because we were part of this IRU unit. Well, I, I did not, I had nothing packed. So I went home and they're like, be prepared to leave for six months today. And I was like, uh, I had never been on tour. I had never gone anywhere. I was just like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? This is the time before I had a cell phone. So I get home, I call my my family. I'm just like, oh my God. My spouse at the time, he was military, but he wasn't deploying. So it was all this drama with me getting ready to go and he wasn't going. And there was so much tension and nervousness. And and I'll be honest, I was like, oh my goodness, like, what am I doing? <laughs> what have I signed up for? And excitement at the same time, I was super pumped to be able to go and help and, and do something. Like I just wanted to dive right in. And you would have just been what, 24 at this time? That seems like a lot for a young person. Yeah, I think I think for today, I think today's 24 year olds, maybe uh, I thought of myself back then uh, that, you know, I had my my life pretty sorted out and I was, you know, I was doing pretty good. So in my mind, I was already a bit of an old soul. So but yes, looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, my God, I was a baby. I, I mean, I had lots of great experiences as a nurse, but I didn't feel like I was the most experienced nurse. And I was really lucky. The other nurses that I was assigned, co-assigned with on this tasking were very experienced and had lots of tours and had tons of nursing time. And so I was just latching on to them like, teach me, teach me, teach me. Like, what do, you, what do I need to bring and what should I do? And it was uh, I was really lucky that I had some great mentors uh, that whole time frame. So it wasn't, and it resulted in nothing. We, we did all the ramp up training. We did all the stuff that, you know, we were supposed to do to get ready to go. And when the battle group went in 2002, uh, we got left behind because they wanted to take some medics and some PAs, but they didn't want the surgical team that we had put together. Essentially, they were going to get their medical supports from the Americans. So we got stood down and then on my tour to Bosnia was back on again. So then I was on my way instead to uh, in the winter time to Afghanistan and the fall I went to Bosnia. So I was still deploying, which was kind of cool. So, But after Bosnia, you eventually did end up going to Afghanistan. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. So I did Kabul. Um, so I got home in April of 2003. 
March 2003, and then uh, finished my ICU and eMERGE courses, and then was able to get a bit of clinical consolidation time in there. I also did the BC fires in Kelowna and Vernon, uh, British Columbia, which is the first time I was ever out here. So it's kind of interesting to live here now, 17 years later. But um, so I did that in the summertime. And then, yeah, I went to Bos- I went to Afghanistan in Kabul uh, in January of 2005 until uh, about mid-July 2005. And were you working in a hospital while you were there? Yeah, we were set up at a role, uh, a role two um, health unit, which is essentially, um, you know, like two ICU beds, two resuscitation bays. We had one OR. I think we had like six ward beds. So it was a pretty small facility. It was just a Canadian facility. Um, whereas when we were working at Kandahar, it was a multinational facility. Um, we had lab and x-ray and we had a really robust primary care unit uh, for kind of our walking, talking everyday sick parade kind of guys. Um, and it was a really interesting experience. It was a lot of uh, a lot of time on the road um, some days because you, if we wanted anybody to have a consult with, say, the German cardiologist or you wanted somebody to see some of the other specialties because there were larger, better equipped, better funded hospitals in other parts of Kabul, we would take our patients and we would road move them to go get some of that stuff done. So it was pretty interesting in the sense that I actually got to be out in the town and I got to drive around in Kabul. And what was that experience like? Can you take us there with you? It was, you know, the town, Kabul, the city itself was just starting to get electricity back online. Uh, So it's still like abject poverty with garbage and feces and filth all, you know, in the same ditch where they're getting their drinking water from. Um, There's people that have clearly got some injuries, like people with like only one or two, one limb walking, you know, hobbling around. Uh, There's... Um, you know, people are living in these small little mud huts, uh, very, very poor. Uh, and yet still, you know, so much hope. I remember uh, because I used to ride in the back of the Bison ambulance and I used to play, I used to stand up a second century, which would have never flown anywhere else. But in Kabul, for whatever reason, they let me because I used to get sick. And in the, in the, if I was underneath in the boat, I used to get motion sick. And I would, and my, the medics would make fun of me all the time because I would be like down in the belly of this beast with my patient like are you gonna be okay nurse and I'm just like yes peeking into this bag like it was not that soldier (laughs) it was so terrible um so I would be up doing rear sentry which is you just you're looking for somebody who's either trying to shoot you or blow you up and I remember just being a complete tourist like I was the toke I was just like smiling at everybody and and I remember a woman uh, on a street corner raising her burqa and showing me her face. And I just thought, oh, my God, that is such a huge monumental event. And I remember, like, giving her, like, the biggest grin. I actually took my helmet off and, like, waved. And it was this incredible moment um, where I thought, wow, how cool is it that she feels she can trust that she'll lift her burqa up and, and, and smile at me. So uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Thank you for painting such a vivid picture for us. And then you came home from Kabul, and am I correct in thinking that you were redeployed not long after? 
I came home from Kabul. I did. I went quickly-ish. I came home in uh, July of 2005. And then in the summer of 2006, I got posted to Kingston, Ontario, and then deployed in either in January, beginning of February to Kandahar. So I had a, a bit of a, I had like a year and a bit, like another like 18 months essentially. And um, it was great. Because uh, I had been jumping at the gun to get to Kandahar because I'd heard about, you know, how serious it was down there and the terrible injuries they were dealing with and just the acuity of care. And that really piqued my interest in the sense of I thought, you know, I might be able to go help out because that had been my background. And in the time frame that I was in Canada, if I wasn't on courses or working in civilian hospital, I also worked casually in Emerge to keep my hours up and keep my skills and my clinical skills and my knowledge up. Um so it was just this constant kind of working towards, you know, trying to perfect my craft. And I finally got to go to Kandahar. And then I was there until I think the beginning of June that same year. And then I came home for six months. And then I went back again in January of 2008. And I was there till the end of September. And how did your experience in Kandahar play out? Uh, it was insane. Uh, it was uh, probably the most heartbreaking, gut-wrenching uh, life-changing experience um, and yet probably the most rewarding like I loved my time in Afghanistan in the sense that I felt the work that we did mattered I thought the care we provided was outstanding considering the circumstances our teams were amazing the people I was surrounded by were outstanding from all nations and it just seemed like it it was stuff that mattered. It was work that mattered. It was care that mattered. You know, you weren't listening to somebody whine and complain about having to take their blood pressure pills because uh, they eat McDonald's every day. You're just like, ugh. Like, I, I find uh, the transition to my new role every once in a while. I'm like, ugh, I miss Afghanistan. But the um, it, it was chaos. Like there were days where you worked 24 hours in a row. I mean, we were the only nurses there. So there wasn't another there if the whole shift was on because of a mass casualty there was nobody else to call in later it was okay who's gonna stay for 24 hours and who's gonna go sleep for six and then come back and shorten so you're always short changing your shifts uh to cover um there was this non-stop flow of bodies and casualties that you know were all blast uh gunshots like ieds bombs uh motor vehicle accidents uh, as a result of probably running, you know, getting shot or running over a bomb. And, um, and we we had some collateral damage casualties, but 90, I'd say 96% of our patients were Afghans. So Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, Taliban, um, and then local nationals. Anything that was happening during the war, everything came to us. So the Brits, the Americans, the Canadians, uh, you know, all the other NATO nations that had were there fighting along with the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police, and then any collateral damage casualties. So it was just this nonstop flow of mangled bodies, you know, for the entire time that I was there. It was absolute, um, it was some of the most heartbreaking uh, time times of my life. Uh, and it certainly changed me. Um, but it was also very rewarding. Our successes, like the people that we saved, you know, we never lost a Canadian in that hospital, which is pretty amazing. I'm Catherine Rusk. Captain Nicola Goddard was my sister, and I'd like to make a request. 
Military service can bring great challenges and sacrifices. Women in particular can face unique issues. Help True Patriot Love and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund support Canada's servicewomen, veteran women, and their families. True Patriot Love Foundation is a national organization that supports the military and veteran community by funding critical programs across the country. Please consider donating today towards their mission at tplgoddardfund.com. No donation is too small. On behalf of my family and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, we thank you for your support. This episode is sponsored by Waypoint Investment Partners. Waypoint has been a proud supporter of True Patriot Love since 2018, and we thank them for sponsoring today's episode. And looking back on your time in Kandahar from where you are now, I'm wondering if there are any moments or stories that really stand out for you. Uh, there are there are so many, you know, whether it's, you know, holding a young boy as he dies, his whole family has been killed and, and I'm the person who sits with him while he dies, or uh, caring for friends that came in that had been injured in, in an IED blast and being able to sit with them. Or, um, you know, sitting with one of our guys while his wife was having her baby back home and you're on the phone with him because he's injured in the hospital and you're, there's just, there's so many, there's not even, there's not even one story, there's thousands of stories that are all just so uh, incredible and, and life changing and Afghanistan really became a part of my fabric as a person. Um, especially after three tours in three years. So it was, you know, it really, who I was that went there never came home. And that's okay, because the person that came back, uh, while there was some struggles, it's it's really worked out for the better. And can you help myself and our audience really understand how your time in Afghanistan changed you? I mean, so uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2009, um, but I knew that I was going to have problems uh, in 2008. So I started having nightmares and flashbacks from my tour in 2007 um, during my tour in 2008. And then um, I started, uh, you know, having a really challenging time you know, particularly towards the end of my tour. And then once I came home, it just kind of fell apart. And it, uh, you know, the nightmares and the flashbacks. And then uh, on top of that, there's this inability to connect with people. So you you go through the motions of, of becoming a robot to kind of stifle your emotions and feelings and your connections with people, because that's how you cope with so much trauma and death and dismemberment and and all of these terrible things that you experience. It becomes this normal to just cut everybody out. So it became really hard for me to connect with people. I couldn't be around anybody who had kids. I, I barely see my nieces and nephews now to this day. I'm not great with children. I don't enjoy being around children and I'll never be a mom. So that's a that's a piece that's, that's really obviously changed. But I got really, uh, really great care. I got really involved in the counseling that I needed to do. Um, and you know, there for a little while there, I was on some medication that helped. Uh, but for a while, I love. I was pretty. I was a pretty toxic individual. I was very angry. I was very frustrated. I felt abandoned by my chain of command and by my supervisors, uh, probably because they didn't know what to do with me. As healthcare professionals, we're great at taking care of other people, but we're not super great at taking care of ourselves. And I really was paying lip service to what my counselors were telling me to do in terms of diving in and really getting into the roots of my issues. And so I was kind of glossing through the surface of 
and skimming the surface of dealing with my trauma and not really getting into it. And, and it came back to, to haunt me. So um, I came home in 2008. I was in Kingston at the time. In 2010, I got posted to Germany and my whole life kind of fell apart and I was not a great person. Thank you for sharing this story with us, Marianne. I'm curious where your turning point was because speaking to you today, it, it definitely sounds like you did have a turning point. I, I think it was probably, uh, so I had been in, I got to Germany in 2010. I came home uh, in the fall of 2011. Um, my spouse and I split and uh, I was really um, just not doing great. And I was really uh, just making bad decisions, living a really risky lifestyle, uh, financially I was putting myself into ruin. And I, and I kind of had, you know, this moment where I was really starting to isolate myself and I was really kind of following this pattern of, you know, really thinking about, do I really want to live? Do I not want to live? Like, where am I headed with this? You know, my depression and anxiety had really gotten really bad. Uh, my PTSD wasn't getting any better and I was not taking great leaps and bounds to get, to get better. And I, I just kind of had this one weekend where I just was so fed up and I was so done and it was it was kind of this decision of okay I'm either going to die uh, or I'm going to get better and I'm and I kind of I'm very stubborn and very bullheaded which in my has worked out really well for me in a few instances and other times not so much but I was just like okay you either shit or get off the pot and you get better because nobody's going to get better for you. Nobody's going to do this for you. You have to do it yourself. So when your counselor says do this, you have to do it because they don't care if you do it or not. I mean, they do care if you do it or not, but, but they don't. At the end of the day, they're going to tell you what needs to be done and you're the person who has to do the work. And I wasn't doing the work. And so I just, I, I'd say it was like early 2012. I just kind of had this moment of, okay, enough. It's time to be better to you need to start taking care of yourself you need to get better or this will kill you like just enough and that's so that's it was just kind of this resolution of okay and I took I started really getting into you know the counseling and I, I quit drinking for a while I really paid attention to the reasons behind my behavior the excessive spending the you know all of the things that I was using as coping mechanisms that really weren't helping me and then finally, you know, like this kind of like fog lifting, you know, was able to finally kind of walk myself out of, you know, the depths of my depression to the point where I got to the, to, you know, I'm no longer on any of my medications. I check in with my counselor once a month just uh, because I can and because I love her and she's wonderful. But, um, you know, it was a complete game changer, but it was my choice. It was me who said, it wasn't one of my, it wasn't my doctor. I mean, my doctors, my, the nurses that I worked with, the people I was around, surrounded by were all telling me. My chain of command was saying like, okay, Marianne, like you need to get better. And you need to, you, you like, it's, it's time. Like, come on now. And, uh, and I just really had to start listening and I was not listening before. So. Wow. I'm so glad that you did listen to your chain of command and your support systems and you pulled yourself out of that hole. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it really is, uh, you know, it really was an uphill battle, but it was, but it was one that, that needed to be done. I wasn't about to, I didn't want to become a statistic. And I also, I didn't want my life to be what it was. So I was really unhappy and I was in, I knew that if I wanted to be happy, it was me who had to change it. There was never going to be a magic pill or one magic counseling session 
or one magic wave of some wand that was going to happen and all of a sudden my life was going to be better and my PTSD was going to be gone and that everything would be okay. And it was, you know, this kind of like aha moment, like, okay, time to go. Up we go. Start climbing this mountain. And so, and I did. Um, So I left Ottawa in 2013. I got posted to the Canadian Forces Medical Services School in Borden. I I was able to go and um, start uh, teaching at the end of my career which was awesome for me. I got to like help teach our nursing courses, uh, the doctors, the physician assistants, all of our medics, uh, our medical technicians that we have in the military. So QL3s, QL5s. I got to help run all of the, some of the trauma training, the advanced cardiac life support training, which was awesome. So I was able to do all of these really great things with all of this experience and knowledge that I had. And I felt at the end, in spite of even all of my, ups and downs and all of the terrible things that I had gone through and survived, they was able to come back to being a contributing member um, again before I was out. I'm curious if you have any words of advice for folks out there who may be struggling with their own mental health crises in this moment. Something that I learned along the way was that it's really important to, to acknowledge that it's okay to not be okay. You know, we have this expectation, I think, especially as women, that, you know, we have to be able to juggle the world and just keep going and put a smile on our face and have our hair and our makeup done and away you go. And I think what I've learned over time is that, one, sometimes moving forward is just standing still. And so if all you can manage to do in, in, a, t- in a short period of time or even in a long period of time is just get through the day, then that's okay. And one thing that I really came to realize is that I, I didn't need to take on the world. You know, when I, when I look back at all the things I, I accomplished while I was still in uniform, you know, I'm really proud of what I did and the patients I took care of and the things that I did. But I also know that some of my ambition um, also contributed to my demise. You know, there was no time for me. There was only ever time for my career. And looking back now, I wish I had more of a balance. And so I really make a point now of having balance. You know, I work casually uh, for the government of Nunavut. I work casually with Interior Health here in Vernon, British Columbia. I have been hired with First Nations Inuit Health Branch in Alberta. Um, You know, there's a couple other places in the mix, but I will not work full time anywhere. And I'm okay with that. You know, I have my pension, uh, so I'm lucky in that sense. But I wish that I could go back and tell younger me, like, just whoa, just slow down. Like you don't have to do it all and you don't have to take it all on. And again, really that piece of sometimes moving forward is just standing still. And I, man, I wish I had known that in my early 20s or my mid 20s when I was, you know, taking on the world and thinking I was kicking butt when really I was just kicking my own butt uh, instead. Well, Marianne, I want to thank you so much for just being so generous with your story and being so honest with us. It's just been an honor to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's uh, I've been listening avidly to all of the sessions and I'm uh, really humbled and honored to be uh, included with this incredible group of women that you've had on here. So thank you for including me. And on our next episode of For Her Country, I speak with able seaman Yvette Yang, a Taekwondo master who is ranked number one in the world and who is the International Military Athlete of the Year in 2019. 
Needless to say, Yvette is a force, and I can't wait to share her episode with you in full. Here's a quick clip of her talking about basic training, which she refers to as BMQ, or Basic Military Qualifications. When I walked into BMQ, all eyes were on me, you know, small little Asian girl. (laughs) But when I was uh, promoted to platoon leader, I definitely showed uh, who I was. You know, I'm, I'm used to people looking down on me and not expecting anything from me. And that actually drives me more to be better than them, you know, to be better than what I was yesterday. For Her Country is hosted by me, Shannon Busta. It is written and produced by me and Katrina Bolak. Our music is by Whiskey Wolf and Oceanic Piano. A special thank you to Catherine Rusk and the Goddard family and the team at True Patriot Love for their support throughout this project. And thank you to our episode sponsor, Waypoint Investment Partners. This project was produced with the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. True Patriot Love is Canada's leading organization that supports military members and their families. It administers the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, which was started by the Goddard family to support women in the military in honor of Nicola. To learn more about this podcast and the great work of this organization, please visit forhercountry.ca and consider donating if you can.